Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Welcome to this ninth of ten studies that we're conducting of the Book of Revelation here at the Village Church in Rancho Santa Fe, California in the fall of 2020. I'm Jack Bach, and it's my pleasure to lead you through this next-to-last section of our study of the last book of the canonical scriptures of Christian faith. We are looking today at Revelation 21.1 through 22.5, and of course it will be helpful if you have the text in front of you and if you have already read it at least once. Let's again locate ourselves within the broad structure of the book of Revelation. In some sense, Revelation tells a story, but in another sense, Revelation simply gives us many stories, many images, many pictures that are meant to be a collage of the final, ultimate truth of all reality. That's what we're looking at. As the letter to the churches, which is really what Revelation is, it's a letter, not a book. The letter to the churches unfolds in the first three chapters by telling us about the vision that Jesus has given to John, that John is then to share with the churches of the first century world. In those second and third chapters, the Spirit of Christ has spoken specifically to seven congregations, seven churches in seven real cities. That's a message not just for those seven churches, but by extension to all the churches. The number seven, as you well know by now, if you've been following along with the study, is a perfect number. When we hear the word seven or encounter that uh, number, we're meant to understand that this is a discussion of everything, the whole thing, just as in, you might say, the seven days of creation. In the next chapters, verses chapters, uh, or chapters 4 through 18, this is the main series of visions that have been given to John that discuss the terrible tragedies and woes and suffering that's going to befall the world as the prelude to God's final defeat of all evil. That final defeat has already been accomplished in some sense in Jesus' victory that he won over death and evil and hatred when he was resurrected from the grave. These last few chapters then, chapters 19 through 22, give us a vision of the final redemption, the final restoration of God's kingdom, in some sense the recreation of all things. In that sense, Revelation is a perfect end to the story of Scripture that begins in Genesis with the beginning of all creation. In these last few chapters of Revelation, we're going to see primarily that the vision that John is given is a vision of the restoration of the holy city of God, the holy community of God. And we'll talk more about that in some detail here. Chapters 17 and 18 that we've just been looking at uh, have, in the last couple of weeks, have talked about the fall of the city of Babylon. Babylon, of course, was the city where the ancient Jewish exiles were taken when Israel was finally overthrown by the Babylonian people uh, in the early part of the 6th century before Jesus, around 587 or so. But of course, now Babylon represents Rome and the Roman Empire. 
the Roman Empire and all that it represents in terms of paganism, in terms of the worship of a man, a human being, the Caesar as God, in terms of life without reference to and, and, and obedience to the real God. That's why uh, the Christians were so down on the Roman Empire, if you will, not because it was Roman people, not because it was even an empire necessarily, but because of the way it completely thwarted the purposes of God. And of course, because of the Romans' emphasis on making sure that Christians uh, at least gave lip service to the deity of the Caesar, which Christians could not do. Therefore, some of them were being killed, many other ways that they were being persecuted, alienated, marginalized, ostracized from society. In the ancient world, the world as uh, conceived by the Greek people in what we call Hellenistic culture, or the world conceived by Roman people, there was a lot of conversation among philosophers and theologians and politicians about the ideal city, or by extension, the ideal civilization. The Roman Empire believed that it had achieved the ideal civilization, or at least that was the official political and governmental line, because that's the way you keep everybody in line. And so John, though, now is going to talk about where the true ideal city actually is and what it is from where it comes to where it's going and what it's all about. We've already seen in our study how John takes familiar images, familiar ideas and concepts, both from ancient Jewish thinking in apocalyptic uh, literature uh, and, and discussion using images and, and ideas and concepts uh, that employ fantastic creatures and, and amazingly beautiful or terrifying visions. We've also seen how John takes uh, ideas from the culture and the civilization around him, even the pagan culture and civilization and recasts those ideas in terms of how Christians would look at them as a way of expressing the ultimate truth of who God is. So now John is going to take on the ideal city, the ideal civilization. What is that actually like? In these last few chapters, we'll see a great emphasis, of course, on God himself. God the creator, God the father, God the spirit, God the son, God the messiah. In this sense, eschatology, remember we've talked about eschatology as a discussion of uh, not just the end times, not just what's going to happen when all time ends, but more what is the end or what is the purpose of all things? What is the place to which everything is going? Oftentimes today we talk about the end game. We'll say, what's the end game? Where is this ultimately going to, to end? Where is it going to stop? What's its purpose? And that's what John is talking about, the end game. In these last few chapters, we see the very strong affirmation that the end game is not specifically about this battle or that enemy or this particular sequence of events. The end game is really about God. God is the end. God is the beginning of all things. Nothing happens without God. Everything is going back to God because God really has never let it go. That's the affirmation that we see realized and affirmed and proclaimed so strongly in the resurrection of Christ, that God has never let go of his creation. 
Therefore, by implication, we never are to let go of God or give up on the idea that God has lost, that evil wins. So God is the end of all things. We have, a, we have the mention here of the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. When you speak of Alpha and Omega, you talk about the very beginning and the very end and everything in between. John is talking about everything. Jesus has given him a vision of where everything began, what's going on with it now, and where it will all end up. God is Alpha and Omega. Jesus is Alpha and Omega. Jesus and God, in some sense, are interchangeable here. We hear this proclamation, this affirmation that there is no temple, right? For the ancient Jews, the temple was the place where God dwelled, where God was particularly present and available to the people. Uh, but here we see that, that, that there is no temple. Why? Well, because God is everywhere. God is available and present and with his people everywhere. We see the city discussed as a perfect cube. That's a very interesting thing, a perfect cube. It's a huge cube. Don't, don't get too hung up on the spatial orientation of everything, but, but this speaks about the perfection of God. We see discussion of a, of a jasper wall. Jasper represents the glory of God, a beautiful, a beautiful uh, uh, mineral, right? We see God's face. We see not the backside of God. You know, in the Old Testament, oftentimes when people see God, they don't really see God. They see God as an angel, God as a burning bush, maybe God walking by, but as that story is famously told, as God reveals himself to Moses, Moses gets to see God from behind. Why? Because God will not make himself fully present to Moses just yet. Moses can't withstand that true knowledge and revelation of God. But now at the end of all things, God's face, or as in the famous benediction goes, God's, God's countenance is right there. We fully see and know God. God fully sees and knows us. God talks about my son. Of course, he's speaking uh, of, of Jesus, uh, and he's speaking then ultimately of all of us, not just his children, uh, but, but the full adult personhood that we have before God. And so please be assured of all this. Everything that's in Revelation leads us to this point of affirming God's ultimate, complete, full presence with us. It's never left. It is hidden, of course. It's sometimes hard to see and hold on to because of the evil that's in the world, but God has never left. Now, in some ways, John speaks about who God is, and that's ultimately what we want to know, isn't it? Who is God? What is God doing? Where's all this going? John speaks in some sense in negative terms by saying what God is not or saying what heaven is not. This is sometimes called the via negativity, the, the via negativa, uh, the way of the negative. You can say that something is not something, and therefore by implication it is that thing that you have not said it is, okay? For instance, John says uh, in these chapters that there is no sea. The sea disappears. Remember that in Genesis, the sea was a representation of evil. The waters, the dark waters, were, the, were a chaotic force, uncontrolled, uncontrollable, except by God. God controls the sea by creating dry land, and it's dry land where you and I live. Now, we are beginning to learn how to live in the sea, of course, but it's a very, very difficult thing to do. You got to create a boat, you got to create a submarine, you got to have oxygen, you got to protect yourself from the huge creatures that are there that can swallow you whole, right? 
in the vision of perfection, there's no more sea. Not so much that we're against the sea itself as a physical thing, but we're against the forces of destruction and threat to human life that the sea represented. There is also, and this is one place where we can just, you know, latch onto this with, with, with great certainty and understand what it means. John says there are in this place, this place where God is, where God is fully present, there's no more tears, death, sorrow, crying, or pain. Think about that list of words again. No more tears, death, sorrow, crying, or pain. There is no more of anything that would take us away from the true life that God means for us to have. There is nothing that will cancel our joy, nothing that will take away our love, nothing that, that will cause us to believe or cause us to experience any kind of pain or suffering. That's an incredibly uh, comforting message, is it not? Remember, John is, is preaching this message from Jesus to Christians who are being persecuted, person, uh, Christians who are being executed, Christians who are struggling to hold on to this faith in Jesus because of this overwhelming power and might of the Roman Empire. But what an incredible affirmation. No more tears, death, crying, sorrow, or pain. There also will be, in this place where God perfectly resides, where everything is restored to the way God means for it to be and meant for it from the beginning, there, there are no cowardly, faithless, polluted, murderers, fornicators, sorcerers, idolaters, or liars. Again, think of that list. No more cowardly people, faithless people, polluted people, murderous people, fornicators, sorcerers, idolaters, liars. Does that mean that all those people are obliterated? All the people who do those things are the people who are those things? Well, some would say yes, but, but more importantly, what we're meant to understand is that those things do not exist in people anymore. Everyone is restored to perfection, to holiness, to completeness. We don't do those things anymore. Now, it's up to God to judge exactly how he accomplishes that. But let's not focus on God wiping out enemies because we so often want to think of God wiping out the people we don't like or the people that have harmed us. But if you actually look at that list, there's something on that list that applies to every single one of us. And so what, what Revelation contemplates, what Revelation proclaims is that all of the, the sin, all of the incompletion, all of the imperfection, all of the ways that we fail God, all of the ways that we fail ourselves and that we fail other people, all of those things are gone. Now, I've already mentioned there's no temple because God is with his people. In fact, that's what the temple originally was. If you remember your Old Testament stories, God comes to be with the people. He gives them the Ten Commandments. They put the Ten Commandments in this tent. Uh, they call it a tabernacle. That's really what a tabernacle is. A tabernacle is a place where God is. God himself is the tabernacle. God himself is with us. There are no more priests because we don't need somebody to remind us about God or to, to stand between us and God and kind of be a go-between, an intermediary, if you will. God is simply there and everybody is in a full and complete relationship with God. There's no more sun. There's no more moon. There's no more night. The gates are thrown wide open. We don't need the light of the sun or the light of the moon because we have the light of God. There is no curse anymore. The curse is gone. The curse of our failed relationship with God, our failure before God, all of that is gone. Now let's focus a little more on the city. 
the heavenly Jerusalem is such an important concept, is such an important theological affirmation, right? We need to remember that during this time of, of Christian history, uh, people, most people lived kind of in small towns. They didn't live in cities, but the, the world was beginning to urbanize, we would say. People were moving into cities. The city itself, as it's described here in Revelation, uh, is, is humongous. It's about 1,500 miles cubed, right? That's a phenomenally huge city by our standards today, by ancient standards uh, where travel was so limited and so difficult. That was almost unimaginably large. It's an incredible city, a place where everything is perfect. And that means to say that this city, this place where God is, is big enough for everyone. Everyone that God wants to have in his city, potentially everyone, there's space for them in that city, right? This is the new Jerusalem. That's hugely important, right? Jerusalem was understood by, by the Jews to be that particular place where, where, where their relationship with, the, with God, their knowledge of God, that particular place where they had everything present about God to them. Jerusalem, of course, had been destroyed, completely obliterated by the Romans in 74 AD, but now a new Jerusalem is going to come, a new place where God is, right? God is restoring everything, now, I know lots of Christians today think of the world as a, as a corrupt and evil place, and our whole point is just to kind of suffer through it until we die and go to be with God somewhere else in heaven. We've given up on this creation. But let's remember that God created this creation. God said this creation was good. God said, I'm here to redeem and renew this creation, beginning in the person of Jesus, right? God, God renewed and restored Jesus, the person Jesus, we say that in Jesus' bodily resurrection that God affirmed the goodness and beauty of the human body and by extension then everything else. Now it's a different kind of body. It's a restored and renewed body. These bodies are in some sense a reflection of, of what a perfect body is all about. But it's not just our bodies. It's God means to restore all of creation. You can't really think of a vision of heaven without thinking of it in, in uh, earthly terms, right? You know, heaven is the place where there's unlimited golf, unlimited ice cream, unlimited whatever it is that you think is magnificent. That's how we conceive of heaven, and that's what heaven will be. Uh, Eugene Boring, one of the primary commentators that I've used for this series of studies, uh, says this very fascinating thing. I completely agree. He says, God does not make all new things, but God makes all things new. God does not make all things new. God makes all things. God does not make all new things, right? Heaven is not some place that's completely different from where we are. Heaven is that place where everything where we are is completely what it is meant to be. Okay, does that all make sense to you? I think it's a beautiful, beautiful vision. So we have this new Jerusalem coming down uh, out of the clouds of heaven from God. It's a restoration of everything. It's a place where everybody can be. It's the fulfillment, the completion, the renewal of all things. It's talked about as a bridal city, right? As a bride. You know, I, I, I do weddings all the time, just finished one a, a few days ago. And, and when a woman gets ready to get married, she goes to her utmost to prepare herself to be beautiful and, 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 and to be as radiant and joyful as possible. That's kind of the vision of Jerusalem here. Jerusalem is at its best, its very best, as God gives us this new Jerusalem. It's a holy city. 
It's a place that's set aside for, for, for the place where everything is absolutely perfect, where everything is oriented around God. Everything centers on God, not on the Caesar, not on politics, not on the human mind or the human intellect or human capability. It all comes from God. It is all focused on God. All reality is changed in this way. And so here's, here's the question I want to leave you with for today. Um, this new Jerusalem is a place where everything in this world is restored and renewed. Now, I don't know, nobody knows, if God is literally physically going to restore this complete creation the way it is, or if we go into a different reality where this creation is restored, we don't know. What we do know is that every, in the future, in the future, in God's future, when everything is completely renewed, in God's future, everything is going to be put back the way it is meant to do, and God is already doing that. That's what the life of Jesus was all about, putting everything back together in this world. And that means that Christian people do not give up on this world. We don't go into a prayer cell somewhere and give up on this world. We don't go sit on a mountain and just wait for God. We don't condemn this world. We do what Jesus did. We come into the world and give ourselves to this world in sacrificial love in order to help renew and restore it now. That's what we do now because of what we already know and believe in faith about how things will be then. Think some more about that idea as you live your life today. I'll see you one more time next week. God bless.